Walter Olson. I'm a senior fellow at Cato's Robert A. Levy Center for Constitutional Studies. And welcome to our book forum this afternoon on David Bernstein's book, uh, Classified, The Untold Story of Racial Classification in America. Uh, before we begin, a few words about our format. Uh, it is streaming over uh, the internet and thank you to internet streaming watchers for your patience. Uh, it's unusual for an event to start at 12.20, but that's what today's is doing. Uh, many others will be watching it afterward via archive, and we are also very honored to welcome C-SPAN, uh, which is taping it for broadcast on that network. I'll introduce first our uh, author and speaker, and then say a few words about our panelists, both of whom, uh, if technology is our friend, will be joining us uh, remotely on the screen to comment on uh, David's book. The, uh, David Bernstein holds a university professor chair at George Mason University's Antonin Scalia Law School in Arlington, Virginia. He's also an adjunct scholar here at the Cato Institute. David is the author of several books, including the one he'll be talking about today, Classified, The Untold Story of Racial Classification in America. Uh, copies are available out there, and I'm sure David is willing to sign one for you. Uh, he will be talking um, uh, for a while, and our commenters afterward, and I'll give them uh, a, a bit more of a build-up later, are scheduled to be Robert Cottrell, uh, professor of law at George Washington University Law School and a specialist in race and American legal history, and Jane Koston, host of the New York Times podcast, The Argument. Uh, look forward to uh, their joining us later. Uh, and for now, uh, David Bernstein. Uh, thank you, Ali. Always good to be here with uh, my friends at Cato. Racial classifications by law have been as American as apple pie since at least the 19th century. Modern Americans tend to shake their heads with revulsion when they think about or read about this length that government authorities went to back in the day to determine who was black for purposes of Jim Crow laws or who was Asian for purposes of racist immigration laws and naturalization laws. But the irony is that we, while we don't really think about it very often, uh, racial classification dictated by government rules is more common today than probably ever before in American history. So many common activities, when you register your kid for school, when you apply for a job, when you apply for a mortgage, when you get a COVID vaccine, and many other everyday activities involve checking a box, saying first whether you're Hispanic or not, and then uh, a member of which racial group you consider yourself to be. These modern racial classification norms did not arise spontaneously, but are a product of maybe one of the most important or consequential government rules you've never heard of, a rule called Statistical Directive Number 15, which was promulgated by the Office of Management and Budget in 1977. Uh, this was considered at the time to be sort of a modest rule change. And the reason is that the various federal agencies have been gathering data about various groups in the United States, but the data was inconsistent. Just for example, there were at least eight different ways of identifying the groups that we now call Hispanic. Back in the 70s, so you had apples and oranges. You couldn't really tell, uh, you couldn't really compare data from one agency to another because there was no consistent uh, classifications and definitions of the classifications. So the OMB said, okay, we just have to regularize this. They formed a committee to do so. There was very little attention paid to it. And eventually they came up with our modern classifications. Um, and when OMB put these into the Federal Register, they warned, by the way, just so everyone, <laughs> just so we don't have any uh, misunderstandings here, these are not supposed to be anthropological classifications. They're not supposed to be Racial class, that's supposed to be scientific in any way. They're not to be used for eligibility for any government programs. They're really just to have consistent statistics among agencies. Nevertheless, in a very short period of time, they became used for all sorts of government programs and government uh, mandated disclosure rules, ranging from affirmative action, one area that most of us are very familiar with, to some areas that we don't probably recognize that I didn't know existed, that, for example, the NIH and uh, FDA by government dictate require all researchers under their jurisdiction to break up the people who are who they who are subjects of uh, scientific and medical research by these unscientific 
racial categories. So have you ever wondered what role tribal membership plays in determining whether someone gets the legal status of American Indian to be eligible, for example, for Bureau of Indian Affairs programs? Or why, if you're an American of mixed racial heritage, there is no multiracial category to check? Uh, and in fact, until 1997, you were only allowed to check one category. Or why the US government will classify a person of South American ancestry whose family moved to Asia and then came to the United States as being solely Hispanic. But if you're from an Asian background and you move to Latin America and then to the United States, you are both Asian and Hispanic. Or why the government classifies immigrants from Pakistan as Asian, but their literal first cousins who may live across the river and across the border in Afghanistan are classified as being white. Or why, as noted, individual researchers are required to break down uh, by crude racial category the research subjects that they use, even though those categories have everyone acknowledges no real scientific validity. Classified, my book addresses those questions and more. I dive into the complex and sometimes surreal world of government-imposed racial classification. Now, these classifications, I suppose, because you know, I go into how they developed in the book, but really the easy way to develop them without creating too much controversy was just to use classifications similar to what people were already familiar with. And therefore, again, it's sort of ironically, these classifications, which had good intentions, uh, were actually direct de lineal descendants of the racist classifications that anthropologists had come up with in the 19th century, meeting the general like black, yellow, brown, white, uh, red racial groups. That's basically exactly the same, you know, which I've, you know, again, no scientific basis, but based purely on skin color and physiognomy, uh, wind up being the classifications that we know today. Some of these classifications, like take the Asian American classification, combine groups that are incredibly internally diverse and distinct. I mean, imagine a classification that includes everyone from the western border of Pakistan to the Philippines. That's 65% of the world's population. There are groups that don't look alike, don't have the same religion, don't have the same culture, and perhaps most importantly, really don't think of themselves, even in the United States, as belonging to the same category, like only about 35% of so-called Asian Americans accept the Asian American classification even as a secondary identity, but those are the legal classifications we deal with. But at least you might say to yourself, we don't have what they used to have in the 19th and early 20th century race trials where someone, there's uh, an argument, is someone really white or really not white? And then we have a whole trial to determine on a variety of pseudo-anthropological and pseudo-scientific bases what race they really are. It's all just self-identified ultimately, right? Uh, no, unfortunately not right. It's true that for the most part, no one will question your self-identification uh, when you fill out a form, but there are cases, especially cases involving uh, people who want to qualify as minority business enterprises uh, for purposes of government affirmative action programs where the government does say, wait a second, your name is Smith and you uh, don't look like you're quote unquote Hispanic, whatever that's supposed to mean. Prove to us that you're Hispanic or uh, Asian or whatever the case may be. And then there are, in fact, hearings or trials or appeals where judges say uh, in sort of pseudo-anthropological ways, well, what really makes someone Hispanic? Uh, and even if we have official definitions, like for example, if it says you have to be of Spanish descent or culture, Spanish origin or culture to be Hispanic in the federal rules, how far back could that Spanish origin go? Is one quarter enough? Is one eighth enough? Is the one drop rule the way we had a one-drop rule for race in the Jim Crow South. Disturbingly, the way courts go about this actually bears a striking and disturbing uh, resemblance to the way courts went about having race trials in the 19th century. The official classifications can be especially troubling for people who come from foreign countries to the United States because the United States' uh, idiosyncratic racial classification scheme is really unique. So when people ask me sometimes, well, what led you to write the book? And there are a bunch of incidents and academic research I did that led me to it. But one incident that occurred was our Peruvian nanny was applying for a green card and I was there helping her. And she had a form to fill out at the, at the immigration office and she had no trouble checking Hispanic as opposed to non-Hispanic. But then it asked for your race. And she goes, what do I put down? And I said, 
eres blanca? Yo no, no soy blanca. Also, tú no eres negra, you're not black. Uh, and she said, no, no soy negra, soy mestiza. I'm mestiza, uh, mixed Spanish, Indian, but there is no uh, mestizo category, of course, on American uh, forms, even though that's a very common identity in Latin America. Now, you might say, well, she's part Indian. Can't she put down that she's Native American or Indian? But no, uh, because of lobbying from American Indian groups who don't want to share the resources of the Bureau of Indian Affairs, uh, American Indians or Native Americans are defined as being of Canadian or, um, or US tribal origin. Latin American Indians don't count. Now, one reason why these classifications are so crude and arbitrary is that no one really thought too much about them at the time because, uh, again, these were made in the 1970s. If you go back to 1970, the last census year before Directive 15 came into uh, being, the United States still largely had a black-white binary. About 12 or 13% of the population was African-American. Over 80% was non-Hispanic whites. But then even the 5% of the population that was Hispanic, uh, although it wasn't called Hispanic then, was generally classified as also being white. So basically, you had a large majority of whites, a significant minority of blacks. And then you had less than 1% of the population identified as Native American or Asian. And at the time, again, uh, it was a significant social disadvantage, uh, or so people thought, to being considered African-American. So people thought, well, no one's going to claim to be African-American if they're really not. And we could tell who is or not generally by looking at them. And everyone knows who's white, uh, therefore. And these other groups are so small, no one really cares. So no one was really paying all that much attention. Again, all they wanted to do was regularize uh, the statistics keeping by the government. Now today, thanks to mass of, a mass amount of immigration and also intermarriage, we have a much larger Hispanic population. They have been removed from the generic white category. They're about 18% of the population. Asian Americans are about 7% of the population. Self-identified Native Americans have gone up somewhat. Uh, we also have a Pacific Islander and Native Hawaiian classification. In any event, they together comprise about twice as big a population as the African American population. So now we have a lot more uh, cases on the borderline than we used to. And even within the African American community, there's a lot more immigration from places like Africa and the Caribbean. And there's always questions about how they should be classified. There's a lot more interracial marriage than they used to be. It's gone up from less than 5% to 22% in the latest statistics. So again, there are a lot more edge cases that no one was really thinking about back in the 70s. And you say, well, why haven't they updated the classifications? And those of you who frequently attend Cato events could probably figure this out. Once these classifications come into being, interest groups form around them and are very protective of their boundaries. So my book uh, addresses the following questions about official racial and ethnic classifications in the US. Are the standard racial categories coherent? Does it make sense to classify all people who have origins in Spanish-speaking countries in the same Hispanic classification, regardless of skin hue, race, national origin, culture, and even whether their ancestors ever spoke Spanish? Because some people, like Basques from uh, Northwestern Spain or um, indigenous people in various countries never actually spoke Spanish, and certainly not as a first language. Is there a defensible reason to classify European Hispanics from Spain, but no other European national or ethnic group as a minority group? Do South, uh, South Asian Americans, such as Pakistanis and Indians, East Asians, such as Chinese or Cambodians, and Austronesians, which is the anthropological group that most Filipinos belong to, belong in the same singular Asian American classification, even though they have different appearances, cultures, religions, and ancestry? And if so, why? How should bi and multiracial people be classified? If a parent who is black identified and a parent who is white identified have a child, should that child be classified as black, white, multiracial, or something else? Some laws dictate, literally, this is a little bit of a shock to me, that someone with one quarter Indian blood qualifies to be a Native American or an American Indian for programs benefiting American Indians. Is that a permissible racial uh, political classification or is it an illegal racial classification? And by the way, one little shocking thing I learned in the book is that if you do have one quarter or less or more Indian blood, you could go to the Bureau of Indian Affairs and get a certificate of, blood, of Indian blood quantum you can find this on the web, I'm not making this up, that, that says exactly what uh, blood quantum you have, which you know, frankly reminded me of Nazi laws about Michelings and so forth and so on. Um, if someone identifies as white in their life and suddenly takes a DNA test, 
and discovers that they have non-white ancestry, say some distant African American ancestry, African ancestry, uh, can they now lawfully identify as an African American? And if so, how much DNA is necessary, or are there some other cultural attributes that you'd have to acquire to be able to claim African American status? And there is one case about this, by the way, which we could discuss. Uh, in the comments if anyone wants. Uh, what is the boundary between white status and official minority status? There's a movement among uh, Iranian and Arab American groups to get the government to classify them into a separate Middle Eastern and North African classification, which the Biden administration seems to be on the verge of endorsing. Should Hasidic Jews, who address different and have all sorts of cultural, linguistic, uh, religious barriers to participating in mainstream economic life be considered a separate category from the generic white category. Uh, they almost became a classification for small business administration purposes in the 70s, but they were deemed and remain a separate classification for the Department of Commerce and some federal housing and urban development programs. If Italian Americans are excluded from a jury involving, in a case involving Italian American defendants, is that an illegal racial or ethnic classification as some courts hold, or as oddly enough most courts hold, that well, they're just generically white, so it doesn't really matter which ethnic group the white jurors are from, there's no discrimination that raises constitutional issues in such cases. Who is Hispanic? I already mentioned some of the issues uh, involving that, but should it extend to people of Brazilian origin who are not currently covered in the Hispanic classification because they are at least arguably Latinos? Do people with Sephardic Jewish ancestry going back to 1492 uh, count as uh, Hispanic because they're of Spanish origin. Now, some of these issues have been addressed by courts and federal and state agencies, not always coherently, not always consistently. Oddly, the Sephardic one is pretty consistent. There are at least three cases that I know of, and in each case, uh, the courts or agencies have said that it is at least some evidence and perhaps dispositive evidence that you qualify as Hispanic. Uh, now, conservatives have long been skeptical of government classifying people by race, at least in the modern period. Uh, they don't like some of the programs that result from these classifications. But surprisingly, from when I started writing the book until now, there's been increased salience of these issues and these controversies because suddenly on the left, there have been a lot of questions raised about the coherence and uh, competence and other issues re revolving around modern racial classifications. Uh, for example, of course, racial discrimination still exists and is still a barrier, but there are some times when it's beneficial to claim a minority racial identity, like when you're applying for government contracts. So that, <clears throat> this has led to the development of a category of people that one of my fellow law professors called identity entrepreneurs, people who go about their everyday life living as an ordinary you know, person of European descent, but they have some vague family rumors or family history of having Spanish or Mexican or, uh, or Asian or some other ancestry, and only for purposes of uh, getting the government contracts do they claim that minority identity. In my own world of the legal academy, uh, someone actually did a study and found that a lot more people check off the box claiming a minority category when they apply to law school than present themselves as being a member of those minority categories once they get into law school. Many progressives also have come to question whether lumping all members of official minority groups into the singular people of color category uh, is, makes, makes a lot of sense, uh, and whether in particular it distracts from the specific plight of African Americans in their centuries-old struggle against state and private violence. Existing classifications in many instances wind up diverting resources primarily to post-1965 immigrants and their descendants, people who have not known Jim Crow or slavery and indeed have only been in the United States in the uh, aftermath of the civil rights era with civil rights protections. This development has led activists to increasingly talk about anti-blackness instead of racism and to substitute for people of color the acronym BIPOC, Black, Indigenous, People of color. It's a little ambiguous. Does that mean black and uh, indigenous and people of color, or black and indigenous people of color, or some, or is it purposely ambiguous? But in any event, the idea is to center the uh, attention of the public on the plight of African Americans historically and Native Americans, who obviously were the groups that were most subject to racist state and private violence and discrimination. 
Meanwhile, uh, some activists go even further and argue that the African-American classification itself should be split between ADOS, American descendants of slaves, and more recent immigrants who, again, have not had the historical experience of Jim Crow and slavery in the United States. Meanwhile, most Americans whom the government classifies as Asian American reject that pan-ethnic identity, and many Americans of South Asian ancestry, Indians, Pakistanis, Bangladeshis, are very uncomfortable with the idea they're lumped into a category of Asian, where they, when they know that most Americans think of Asians as being like Chinese, uh, Japanese, Vietnamese, East Asians, in other words, and they really don't have anything in common with those groups. So I looked this up out of curiosity. Every major university has, a set, has an Asian Pacific Islander group and it also has a separate South Asian group. And sometimes they also have, for foreign graduate students, separate Pakistani and Indian groups because those two groups, if they're at least from Pakistan and India, don't always get along with each other for some obvious uh, re uh, regional reasons. In short, the time is ripe for a full reconsideration of the law of racial classification in the United States. My book focuses on how the modern law of racial classification has developed, how the familiar categories and their boundaries were established by the government, how they are enforced, and what might be done to reform the classification. Also, how we might use more nuanced demographics and non-racial classifications to better achieve some of the same goals that are now uh, being pursued by arbitrary racial classification. For example, if you really want to have a genetically based medicine, you shouldn't use crude racial classifications as a proxy for people's uh, genetic heritage. You should actually use genetics, which you can do now because DNA tests are relatively cheap and available. A final thought. Uh, there's long been an internal American struggle between the desire to maintain official racial classifications as a necessary prerequisite for redressing harm from racism on the one hand, and on the other hand, wanting to eliminate these classifications as unconstitutional, illiberal, divisive, and so forth on the other, and that has yet to be resolved. But I want to point out that many law professors and other academics, particularly those writing from a critical race theory perspective, start with a presumption that racial division is a permanent part of American life. And if that's true, then you can understand why you want to classify people and then make sure that each group is getting uh, some fraction of uh, general resources. But I disagree. All sorts of racial and religious conflicts that were once prominent in American life have faded into distant memory. This includes relatively obscure rivalries, such as Germans versus Scandinavians in the upper Midwest, but you can read Sinc uh, Sinclair Lewis if you want to uh, learn more about that, uh, and uh, tensions between Basque shepherds and ranchers of other ethnicities in the Mountain West. It also includes better known and sometimes violent religious conflict, including anti-Mormon riots in the 19th century, the history of Protestant hostility towards Catholics that led, among other things, to a vigorous rebirth of the Ku Klux Klan in the 1920s, and also the attempt by various government authorities to suppress Jehovah's Witnesses, which actually led to a lot of our major First Amendment cases in the 1940s. These conflicts have only the faintest echoes today, and I think most younger Americans in particular think of them as being kind of ridiculous. Like, no one cares that we have a Catholic president, Catholic speaker of the house, six Catholic Supreme Court justices, except sometimes when abortion comes up, that becomes an issue. But in general, I, right, there's no, no one's rioting uh, in, in, in Illinois over the Catholic-dominated U.S. government. In the future, perhaps we will look back on racial conflicts similarly as a vestige of a less sophisticated and intolerant past. How the U.S. government handles racial classification will pay, play a major role in whether we reach that outcome. Law played a significant role in establishing racial divisions in the United States, and law or its absence can play a significant role in either maintaining or abolishing or at least diminishing those divisions in the future. Thank you. Thank you, David. We're joined for comment and please, um, I, I don't have a good view of the screen, but I believe that uh, both of our commenters are, are already on the screen. We're joined for comment by uh, two distinguished guests, uh, and I'll give a little bit fuller introduction to them now that you can see them. Uh, Jane Coaston is the host of the New York Times podcast, The Argument. Previously, she was a politics reporter at Vox and MTV Logo, a writer for the Human Rights Campaign, and a former resident fellow at the University of Chicago's Institute of Politics. She is a native, I believe, of Michigan, the best state to be a native of. Uh, Robert Cottrell is the Harold 
Paul Green, research professor of law at George Washington University Law School here in Washington, DC, and a specialist in race and American legal history. He is the author of several books on that and other subjects, and is also known to many of us at Cato as a prominent scholar on the Second Amendment and the history of firearms law. He has just finished the book, Insurgent Victory, Heller, MacDonald, and the Restoration of the Second Amendment. Look forward very much to reading that one. Um, so Jane, if you're ready, uh, why don't we start with you? Start with you. First and foremost, thank you so much for having me. Um, it's a pleasure to be here. And I, I just, I also, when I, when Walter reached out to me about this book, it was perhaps one of the first Cato events that immediately brought up a memory of childhood, which for any mixed race person is the first time you ever have to fill out a form and you have to fill out you know, your racial categorization. And if you grew up in the late 1980s or early 1990s, as I did, um, the options were black, white, Hispanic, or other. And I always had to fill out other, which, you know, the myriad of possibilities other contained always were was very entertaining to me. But um, I was also struck by how these racial classifications are attempting to make a science out of a cultural understanding of race. And then when science needs to have a conversation about race, science finds it difficult to do so. I, I was particularly struck in the book by the discussion about the role in which race does play in science, in which we have discussions about certain groups having lower birth weights or certain groups experiencing some genetic anomalies that other groups don't. But with regard to other categorizations, for example, the idea of being Hispanic, that's not a racial categorization, that's an ethnic categorization. And yet it is often treated by institutions and by governments as being a racial categorization. And I think that I was really interested, obviously, in the chapter on um, mixed race identity, though I do think that as someone who identifies as being mixed race, but also as being African-American and Caucasian, um, to deny either would be to make one of my parents very upset. I, I think that it's worth contemplating how the growth of that categorization actually tells, I think, a very hopeful story about race in America, about the work that has been done since Loving versus Virginia, in which the Supreme Court uh, eliminated uh, barriers to mixed race marriage in America. Um, and I think that some of this is an effort in which law and government is catching up to where people are right now and where people will continue to be. I think that racial categorizations are attempting to make science sense out of culture, out of, out of how people see themselves or how people see other people or I think also our innate desire to understand who we are and perhaps more importantly, who someone else is. And so I think that the story of racial classification and racial, racial categorization is an effort to make sense out of an idea that doesn't actually make that much sense, which is how we think about race, how we think about whether or not does being 6% of African descent make you African-American. Um, I was very amused by the story of the man um, who attempted to argue that he was indeed African-American because he wanted to get small business benefits. And in part, he did so by joining the NAACP and getting a subscription to Ebony Magazine, which, great magazine though. Um, and so I think that so much of these classifications are attempting to use numbers and data to actually make sense of something that perhaps can't be seen by numbers or data. Are you, you know, in, in England, for example, being Asian means that you are South Asian. It does not mean that you are South Korean. And so these, these categorizations and these use, attempts to use data to make sense of how people see themselves was always going to be a fool's errand. I think, though, that I, I think that this also offers us an opportunity to rethink how these categorizations guide our lives. And especially because we want these categorizations to tell us something about ourselves that perhaps they were always going to be unable to do so. 
being African-American in 2022 does not mean what being African-American in 1960 meant, particularly when there are people who define themselves as being African-American, who, as we discussed earlier, are descendants of folks who were able to emigrate after to the United States after 1965. Their historical experience of being African-American is going to be very different than my family's experience of being African-American. And so I think that all of this is to say that we're experiencing government data attempting to catch up to culture and to catch up to the movement of peoples as people's self-definitions change and even slip as we see that only a certain a small percentage of people whose family comes from Mexico check the Hispanic box on forms, as we learn in the book. And so I think that all of this is to say that racial class classifications are attempting to make data sense out of culture. Again, that was always going to be a fool's errand, but I am hopeful that this book offers the time to you know, start a new conversation about what these classifications mean. These classifications mean something very different in the world of science, but as we've seen time and time again, having discussions about race and science can have a tendency to lead in a direction no one really wants to go in, but one that's still worth having a conversation about. What does it mean for affirmative action, particularly as, uh, we, as discussed in the book, when affirmative action can, at, especially at elite universities, often helps people who are already in better financial standing than many of the people perhaps thought they were intended to help. I, I'm really excited about the conversations that this book can open. Um, and I, I just, I'm glad it was written and I'm really glad that I can be here to talk about it. Thank you, Professor Cottrell. Thank uh, the Cato Institute for uh, the invitation and the opportunity to look at uh, David Bernstein's really interesting and, and provocative book. And uh, it's, it's a par with many of the uh, quite interesting conversations that I've had with, uh, with David over the years. Um, I'm in a quandary when I look at this book because I think much of it uh, does a good job of exposing uh, the nonsense that um, racial classification uh, often is. Uh, racial classifications can be uh, absurd. Uh, they can be sort of nonsensical. Uh, I do a lot of comparative work looking at the United States and Latin America and I think of the colonial casta categories that existed in Latin America, um, which many of the people in Latin America, including many immigrants from Latin America, are heir to. Um, the uh, casta categories had some 16 different racial de slash color definitions uh, that they used to get categorize the peoples uh, of colonial Latin America of the Spanish empire. Uh, the Span a child of a, Span a Spaniard with an Indian woman is a mestizo. The child of a mestizo with a, a Spaniard is a castizo. The child of a castizo uh, with a Spanish woman uh, is a Spaniard on and on for some 16 and in some cases more categories. Uh, none of these really made any sense. And the, actually the Costa system or the classification system actually broke down uh, as not representing the reality of, of what life was like in the, in the uh, uh, Spanish empire. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, it what became not only part of the law, but indeed many cases part of the culture and part of a culture that is still used. Or we have in the United States uh, the infamous one drop rule uh, uh, with respect to certainly to people of African descent. Uh, the idea that any traceable African ancestry uh, makes you black. There are people in this country alive today who have fair skin, uh, blonde hair, and blue eyes who have Negro or colored on their birth certificate. And they regard themselves as such, or they regard themselves as Black or African-American to update the lexicon. But nonetheless, 
uh, even though they are phenotypically totally different uh, from what we would think of as, as a black person, they nonetheless regard themselves as such. We have other people uh, for whom the racial mixture occurred, let's say in the 1980s or 1990s, who regard themselves as mixed or who don't regard themselves as black or African American at all. Uh, I think one of the things that we have is how do we integrate our notions of racial categorization uh, when we are in fact faced with uh, immigration from other parts of the world where people have perhaps a very different sense of how to categorize people. Or in some cases, I find uh, particularly how we deal with the Hispanic category uh, is particularly interesting. I happened to be a few uh, in southern Brazil uh, a few years ago. Um, and southern Brazil is very interesting, uh, in case you haven't been there. Most of the population is of German or Italian descent. Uh, there are still people, many people at home still speak German or Italian uh, as, opposed to, uh, as opposed to Portuguese. One town in, in southern Brazil, in Santa Catarina, boasts of having the world's second largest Oktoberfest. Uh, I was in Santa Catarina, and I was talking to a German-Brazilian woman who was a student at a university. And uh, she asked, well, could she benefit from affirmative action uh, as a Hispanic uh, in the United States? And my initial reaction was to say, well, no, that's, that's absurd. You're, you know, you're almost, you're of pure German descent. But when I thought about it more and more, uh, she probably could, uh, which leads to the sort of uh, absurdity that we have. Um, so we have a, a, a system of racial classifications uh, that I think as David has, has ably pointed out, uh, leads to some absurdities and some anomalies. Let me propose something though. Um, it might not be as easy to get rid of these uh, as we might think. Uh, yes, it's absurd to classify somebody who is blonde haired and blue eyed as black. Uh, yes, Hispanics can be of any racial group. Uh, and uh, as soon, you know, and that's something the rest of the population has to, to realize. I have encountered black Hispanics, white Hispanics, uh, Chinese and Japanese uh, Hispanics. Uh, you know, the, the term has uh, no racial meaning as such. Um, yes, the system that we have leads to absurdities, but let me pose what I think is the hard question um, have they taken on a life and importance of their own and a life and importance of their own that goes way beyond uh, any scientific merit uh, that these classifications may have? Uh, for example, if we say uh, that there are people who are discriminated against because of race, then it seems to me we have to have a vocabulary and perhaps we even have to have an official vocabulary uh, to describe what is being done. Uh, if we decide to say, look, racial categories are absurd, we can point to all sorts of anomalies uh, and also not only anomalies, but absurdities in terms of the way we use them. Uh, how do we then um, in, in fact, determine whether, first, when equal, inequality exists uh, without even getting into the question of discrimination. Um, and then also, uh, don't we need uh, classifications or how do we determine uh, whether or not discrimination is occurring, whether or not inequality is occurring, uh, if we in fact don't have the vocabulary uh, that allows us to say uh, there is a group, uh, we might categorize that group uh, as X, uh, uh, that group uh, suffers substantial inequalities in terms of education, social services, employment, uh, and other indices. Uh, 
We suspect that uh, discrimination uh, is a part of that. Uh, and even if we suspect that it's, or, or even if we discount that or say that discrimination is lessening, uh, we believe that at least for some groups, remedial me measures are necessary, i.e. affirmative action by whatever name you want to give it, uh, to remedy uh, inequality, particularly uh, if you're talking about entrenched inter intergenerational uh, inequality, of, for which uh, uh, discrimination is certainly the genesis. Um, can we do that without a system of racial uh, categorizations? Uh, and if so, what would be the substitute for it? Uh, these are questions I think that we haven't really started to look at uh, in terms of, okay, recognizing that, uh, uh, you know, racial categorizations are unscientific and in many cases, certainly at, at, at the far edges, uh, absurd. Uh, do they nonetheless serve a useful purpose that we may want to get rid of them, but then can we find a, a substitute that will let us do uh, what we are trying to do today in, in, with racial classifications? Even for example, uh, anti-affirmative action activists who uh, are now putting forth the proposition that Harvard and other elite schools are discriminating against Asians, Asian Americans, uh, have to in fact use cla racial classifications in order to make the statistical case that this kind of discrimination is occurring. Uh, could they do it uh, without the existence of racial classifications? Again, I'm not saying we necessarily have want to keep them, uh, but we might want to, in fact, look uh, and see, you know, do they now serve a useful purpose? Uh, and should we, uh, and do, can we find uh, a substitute that would equally serve that purpose? Uh, but let me just uh, end by saying, I think uh, David has, has done a tremendous service uh, by raising the issue and highlighting the difficulties of racial classification and racial categorization. Uh, I certainly learned a, a lot from reading his book and from conversations that I've had on this topic with him uh, over the years. Thank you. Now, um, I'd like to uh, invite the panelists uh, and uh, Professor Bernstein to um, generally offer anything that uh, they'd like in response to each other's comments. One thing I'd point out about format here is that because we at the uh, uh, table can't see the uh, commenters, uh, don't raise your hand or uh, wait for us to catch your facial expression. Just jump in as if it were a phone call because that's the only way we're gonna uh, know that you, you want to speak. But do any of you have uh, reactions? David, do you have reactions to the comments? Sure. Um, with regard to the issue of uh, trying to racialize a culture, cultural phenomenon, I think that's right. I, I wanted to say, use that as an opportunity to say a little bit more about uh, the use of race in medicine, because I think this was the most surprising and really maybe disturbing uh, thing that I encountered in my research. So in the 1990s, um, there was concern that women weren't being used sufficiently in uh, academic medical and medical studies, uh, biomedical studies, and uh, there, are reason, there were reasons for that, but the reasons, but women do physiologically differ from men, and there was concern that testing things only on men was going to leave out uh, possible side effects or, bad, or lack of efficacy on women. So Congress decided to start to intervene, and civil rights groups hadn't been very interested in this issue, but uh, they sort of jumped on the bandwagon at the last minute and added an amendment to a federal law that would also require that any FDA or NIH grantees or regulated bodies would have to consider uh, race as well, would have to break down their subjects by race and make sure they're using enough members of different racial groups. Uh, unlike with women, there was really very little scientific reason to believe that this would be a useful thing in general, and specifically, there was really no thought given to whether 
what racial categories one would then use, right? You could break up, I mean, Africa, for example, is a very diverse continent. Many Somalis and Ethiopians are more genetically related to Arabs and Jews than they are to Sub-Saharan Africans. So they required, they required the FDA and NIH to do this without really any thought. FDA and NIH proceeded to request comments, and the FDA in particular, every single biomedical group said, this is a disaster, this is crazy. These, the, the, you know, using um, the standard racial classifications would, would be a nightmare. But you know, if you're in the FDA's position, what are you gonna do? Are you actually gonna gather anthropologists, geneticists, and so forth and have a conference on what is race? That would just, you know, political consequences of that would obviously be a nightmare. So they just nevertheless used the crude classifications, which has had, uh, I think tremendous negative effects. Uh, it has stifled, because there are opportunity costs always, uh, you're less likely to act, look at actual genetics. It leads to stereotyping among doctors and medical researchers. Uh, when you go to the doctor, they ask you your race, they really shouldn't, because the odds that uh, your racial heritage is going to be actually useful in determining things is pretty slim. And you know the fact that one self-identifies as Native American, or as Bob was saying, uh, you could be have very little African ancestry, but be African-American, and so you're confounding, uh, if there was any usefulness, you're confounding it because your self-identity doesn't necessarily match your genetic heritage and so forth and so on. Uh, and it's, and it's, it's just shocking to me that science writ large has sort of gone along with this, as opposed to saying, wait a second, everyone knows, even the government itself told us these aren't scientific classifications, we can't be using these in scientific research. Uh, with regards to Bob's point, People often say, well, why don't we just go to the French system? The French famously uh, both declined to classify anyone by ethnicity other than French uh, officially, and is also a strong social norm against it. And the reasons that we're not gonna do that is that whether you think that would ultimately be a good idea or not, uh, exactly what Bob was saying, that if it does prevent uh, looking into inequality, uh, enforcing discrimination laws. So in France, on the one hand, uh, they encourage assimilation and national solidarity by not having ethnic classification. On the other hand, there's almost no research on why certain North African groups haven't integrated well because no one's allowed to study that. Uh, when there was a wave of anti-Semitic violence in France, largely coming from the from North African Arab immigrants against North African Jews, you know, it took a long time for the French government to be at all responsive because they say, well, they're just Frenchmen. This is just, we'll just put these under normal criminal, uh, the criminal statistics. We shouldn't separate this out by who the attackers were or who their victims were. That's anti-French. So this is a complicated story, and I don't spend much of the book talking about solutions, but what I do say at the end is that we have to figure out what are the classifications being used for, and then figure out what should there be racial classifications at all? Like in medicine, there shouldn't, in my opinion. Uh, but in civil rights enforcement, the classifications we use are crude, but they're probably good enough. But for, for example, sociological research, if you want to see inequality, it's a problem to just combine people into different groups. We say that Asian Americans are doing well you know, in education and economically, but it turns out that Indians and Chinese have way above average incomes, and Burmese and Malaysian Americans have below average, and averaging them out doesn't really tell you anything about the specific groups. You could also, you know, if Nigerian immigrants are doing well, and they are one of the higher income groups, and they're raising the African American average, that might mask the fact that other African Americans are not doing well. So we do need, I think, to be much more finely grained in how we do research like that. Thanks. Any other comments from the commenters? Okay. Um, before we go yeah, into I, general, I'm sorry, go ahead. Um, I think, um, I think um, um, Robert also had a thought, but, um, but, um, but I, I was struck I, by your comments with regard to uh, race and medicine. And I think that this plays into something I think Robert brought up about like, how do we track and how do we think about discrimination without using these categories? Because I think that while race is not, you know, while race should not, like, and race and racism obviously should not exist in the medical field, it does. And I think that when we're thinking about how to respond to discrimination in medicine, which does take place, even if yes, and I, I think that's an excellent point thinking about the, you know, the, the, amalgamation of humanity that is African-Americans is actually a massive category. And you know, I know that um, 
when my aunt did 23andMe, we learned that some of our relatives came from Benin, which is a specific place with a specific genotype. And yet I know that African-Americans within the medical, like within the medical profession have experienced specific types of discrimination. For example, um, being believed to be more resilient to pain. And there's been also a lot of conversations about African-Americans with regard to maternal mortality. So I think that that's, that's the thing is that we are, the, the horse has left the barn, so to speak, when it comes to how we think about race and medicine. And now we are in, you know, we are in this moment of trying to figure out a better way forward while also seeing the ramifications of decisions that were made previously. But I think, Robert, you wanted to say something? Yes. Uh, at the risk of adding uh, yet another name uh, for people's, uh, people of African, uh, Americans of African descent, uh, you know, I've lived through about six or, or seven of them during the course of my lifetime. I've always found the term African-American somewhat problematic, precisely because it lumps those of us uh, who are descendants of American slaves in with recent African immigrants, uh, you know, who, uh, yes, we may share something, but we also have uh, tremendous differences. And, and I think uh, you know, I've frequently tended to use in, in recent writings, uh, revived the term Afro-American rather than African-American to describe people uh, who, are, uh, uh, who, who are from the Americas, who are native to the Americas of African descent, rather than uh, to distinguish us from uh, 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 people born in Africa who then moved to the Americas. Uh, but okay, just a small point, but uh, uh, nonetheless, you know, a problem with classifications as, as they've developed. And one little permutation that I did not realize before I wrote this book, that 10% of people who are classified as African-American on the census were born abroad. And if you combine them and their children and grandchildren, I don't know exactly what the percentage is, but it's much higher than I would have guessed not having done this research. And again, if you're averaging the statistics or whatever, you are potentially um, confounding the research you're trying to do by combining two groups that may have different attributes into one. Well, thank you. Um, soon we will move to general question and answer from the audience, but I wanted to take the moderator's prerogative to ask a question or two myself. Uh, <clears throat> First, if I could be devil's advocate a little bit. Uh, David, you do a brilliant job in what we used to call deconstruction uh, in the, the law schools. You know, this was the, uh, I'm not even gonna call it a fad, this was the school of thought that became tremendously influential that said that uh, take any old uh, revered, uh, uncontroversial legal uh, concept and you can find that it's arbitrary and historically contingent and contestable. And I have never seen anyone do such a number on legal concepts as you have done with, with race here. And they are all, so far as I can see, arbitrary, historically contingent and contestable. A few of my favorite examples are uh, Mr. Taylor from the state of Washington, who was black when working on state-funded contracts, but when the federal government was partially funding uh, the work, he, he became white. Um, the situation of Southern Californians uh, who are of Armenian descent who were a protected group so long as they were in the city of Pasadena and nowhere else, and if they moved to Altadena or South Pasadena, uh, went back to becoming an unprotected group. The, uh, the fact that all of this, and this was new to me even though I've been writing about these things for, for a long time, the fact that we owe all of this not to any of the agencies that have, have built up any expertise on discrimination, but to the Office of Management of Budget of all agencies, you know, the, the last place I would ever go to expect cultural sensitivity about who, who you know, and that, that's where we wound up getting it. And, and then just, I, I could go on all day, but my, my favorite uh, la last one is the uh, guidance from the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission saying that uh, millions of people could count as being from, of, of Spanish cultural origin, unless they were from Spain itself, in which case they could not say they were of Spanish cultural origin. Figure it out, I can't. Anyway, so, so it does, 
so, so if nothing else, you will take away from this book, which I strongly recommend, uh, the realization that many of the words that you thought you knew have 10 or 20 or 30 different definitions, depending on whether or not they come up in a context of housing discrimination or employment discrimination or statistical uh, gathering. And then I thought, wait a minute, uh, you know, one of the things uh, that I think is part of the law school experience is realizing that this matter of having 20 different inconsistent definitions is not just race words, it's kind of all words. If you turn to any legal term, whether it, you know, to effect something or uh, to, um, uh, it, you know, the, whatever it is, property or whatever, you will find that the definition uh, for patent law is a little different from the difference uh, from the definition in banking law, which is a little different from landlord-tenant law, and it's explained. You know, stop being so analytic and thinking that all the definitions have to converge. Each definition is serving a purpose because the law has somewhat different objectives in each of these areas. It's okay. The law, the law is solving problems when it uses a slightly different definition in each context. Couldn't you defend uh, what you brilliantly document in the book as saying this is just the law's different way of solving problems in the different areas? Sure. I mean, I even concede that the original, if the rules had been limited to their original purpose of primarily of helping government agencies in enforcing anti-discrimination rules. The classifications are still inexact and crude, but you know, if someone discriminates against, you know, really hates Hispanics uh, or Mexicans, let's say, they may just see your last name as Lopez and they don't really care uh, what you look like. They're just gonna throw your resume into the trash and so forth. And someone who discriminates, who doesn't like black people won't necessarily care whether you're a Nigerian immigrant or whether your ancestors uh, came to the United States in chains in the 1650s. So uh, for some purposes, these classifications uh, may actually be useful. But I think, you know, the question is, we are using them for a lot of other purposes now, and they also have come to affect people's self-identity and see how we see other people. And the question is, is that, is that productive in some way that it's good enough, or is it counterproductive? And I guess my argument would ultimately be that it's counterproductive. I mentioned the medical example where I think there's a lot of counterproductive. The Moderna vaccine was actually delayed for a few weeks because the chair of NIH, who had oddly enough previously written in academic writings that we shouldn't use race in medicine, said that Moderna didn't have enough members of the Hispanic and black classifications to go forward with the vaccine, even though there was absolutely no scientific reason to believe that mRNA vaccines work differently on certain groups and on others, especially non-Hispanics who are not, as we've said, are, are a distinct racial group to begin with. Um, so and then there's also, you know, let's say you're trying to study, you want to, you're concerned about inequality among the Hispanic population of Florida. So you get a government grant, the government requires you to break down your research subjects, they have a definition of Hispanic, you have to use it. So you're, you have, uh, so you, you resolve that, let's just say that Hispanics are doing about average compared to the general population, so there's nothing really to see here. Well, however, of course, if you look at the actual Hispanic population of Florida, you have Cuban-Americans who came in the 19, early 1960s, some who came before that, in fact. You have those who came in the Mariel Boatlift in the 70s who are sort of two distinct populations. Then you have the Venezuelans and Argentines who come more recently to escape economic and political turmoil in their home countries. Uh, and then you have uh, I was once driving through central Florida on some road that I didn't know existed, and it was you could have easily been in a small town in Mexico. You have Mexican agricultural laborers in part of Florida. You've had a large-scale immigration of Puerto Ricans recently into central Florida. And each of these groups uh, is uh, assumedly, uh, or at least there's no reason not to assume, likely has different levels of educational achievement, different levels of discrimination that they feel they face in society, different uh, social, medical, other challenges, and you would never know that just by averaging them together. So to a large extent, you know, I've, I feel like these classifications often obscure more than, than they illuminate and wind up being counterproductive. So it's one thing to say, well, we can't be completely exact, uh, which is undoubtedly true with legal definitions in many cases. It's another to say, well, we can't be exact, so we should just let any arbitrary classification stand regardless of the negative social consequences. Uh, and that's another story entirely. Okay. Um, 
We will be taking questions from both the in-person and the online audience. Uh, a lot of questions have come in from online watchers. If you are an online watcher uh, but do not know how to ask a question, um, you can enter it directly on the event webpage, Facebook, YouTube, or Twitter uh, using the hashtag CatoEvents. CatoEvents is the way to ask a question. Um, uh, in the meantime, uh, we will start with questions from the in-person audience, uh, if any of you. Um, okay, uh, sir, uh, and if you could um, wait for a microphone, I think someone's gonna bring you a microphone. Um, do we have, yeah. Um, and then when you get the microphone, if, uh, besides speaking clearly and directly into it, uh, if you could state your name and affiliation so we know who you are. Uh, thank you, I'm Leon Weintraub. I'm a retired member of the Foreign Service. I wonder if it might be helpful, if the author might think, to give us a little bit of background concerning the controversy about Elizabeth Warren and allegedly her claim to Indian ancestry, uh, and then backtracking on that. I'm wondering if how that all happened and how it occurred might help us understand how this all works at a more granular level. So interesting that you asked that because in I have a book introduction and in chapter one I go through some famous individuals whose ethnic identification has been in some sense contested publicly, although not necessarily legally. Uh, Tiger Woods, who refers to himself as Caliban Asian, uh, is one example. Elizabeth Warren is another. And uh, Elizabeth Warren, I mean, you know, my sense of it, because I've, I've written about it uh, at, the, at the time, is that she went to a, a, a relatively mediocre law school, uh, not a bad law school, but not, not, not the kind of law school you would normally get a job from Harvard, which is Rutgers. And she wanted an advantage and she had some vague family rumors or history that she might be Native American and she put down that she was and that helped her, may or may not have helped her get to Harvard, but she thought it would. And the reason I'm pretty convinced that this was her motivation was that as soon as she got to Harvard, she stopped listing herself in the law professor's guide as being Native American. So I'm, I'm not sure that anyone who's defended her has explained why that would be, unless she suddenly had an epiphany that these stories uh, were not true. But in any event, what I, I go through to show what the legal definitions would be, and the, I do have a, cha a separate chapter on Native Americans, or really they're usually called American Indians in federal law. It's a fascinating subject. The, the, all, there are also different laws that have different definitions. Some require the one quarter blood quantum, which she doesn't have. Some require um, that you be a member of the tribe, which she is not. However, some say cultural affiliation is sufficient, which she may or may not, you could, you could argue that she has. She wrote a, a recipe for the book Pow Wow Chow, a, recipe, a Native American recipes. Maybe that's evidence that she's accepted culturally as Native American. Uh, and some just say, you know, give the criteria and any other person recognized as an Indian by the Bureau of Indian Affairs. So as long as the government says you're an Indian, you're an Indian. So uh, it's, it's, it's a little bit more ambiguous than you might think, but uh, in the end, I think she was definitely in that classification of identity entrepreneur. Okay, uh, an online question from Eloy Vera directed to Professor Cottrell, but really anyone uh, on the panel can answer it. Uh, do you think the American system of racial classification will eventually fade away as a result of exposure to other cultures with more flexible notions of identity, or will American ideas about race be exported gradually to the rest of the world? I think it, we won't necess, uh, necessarily see uh, the same racial classifications that we've always known or have now in perpetuity. But one of the things that is actually happening is, at least in parts of Latin America, has, is there has been an exportation uh, of uh, American notions of racial identity, uh, particularly uh, an embracing, which I find somewhat puzzling, um, of uh, the one drop rule or something like that among many Afro-Latin um, groups uh, in, in, in a number of nations. Um, what happens is uh, the tradition in Latin America was to recognize, uh, recognize various mixed categories, uh, mulatto, zambo, morisco, and other uh, kinds of categories that indicated you were partially of African descent and partially of, of uh, uh, other backgrounds. Uh, 
there's been a movement uh, in Latin America to replace those terms with the term afrodescendiente, or in Brazil, afrodescendente. Uh, the idea, I'm African descended, uh, and I don't necessarily recognize the traditional uh, mixtures uh, of that uh, have, have been traditional in Latin America. And I think many uh, Afro-Latin activists uh, basically say, we want the unity uh, that has occurred within the black population in the United States, where uh, you don't divide yourselves uh, by degree of racial mixture, but everybody says I'm black. And so there's a desire to pick that up for political purposes, for the, uh, for the idea that you produce a unity in the group. And in some cases, simply uh, for recognition. One uh, nation that fascinates me is Argentina, where there's a claim, there's historically been a claim throughout the 20th century, there are no black Argentines. Well, there are black Argentines and there are an even greater number of Argentines who have some African ancestry. And the Afro-Argentine movement is trying to claim them and uh, essentially to use the one drop rule uh, or to adopt it uh, to basically increase numbers and visibility. So there's been some export, uh, you know, to varying degrees of strength uh, of U U.S. ideas of uh, racial identity. And, uh, and certainly we're uh, assimilating uh, other ideas, including ideas that have developed in Latin America uh, with our large uh, Hispanic population. I would also say that we've seen that happen in Europe as well, where Black Lives Matter became a catchphrase in France for French Africans, which has been a real subject of some contesting this idea that American quote unquote wokeness has been exported to France. However, I think that that also gets to the idea that many people want a language in which to talk about race, but in a country such as France, where you are French and that's it. I think that they are, you have people who are looking to America, even if, if it's just in a sense of how can we talk about the fact that our experiences are different and our experiences are reflective of who we are in this particular characteristic. Um, and so I think that that's something like the interchanging of how we talk about race across cultures um, has always been really interesting to me, especially because as a mixed race person, um, I've looked to the history of mixed race people in Brazil, for example, but also in folks from New Orleans um, and the history of New Orleans. And that also gets into the, the history of folks who are Creole and also the history of you know, race in France. So all of these ideas are very contested, but they all flow outside of international borders. We have time for a super quick question, if anyone has a super quick one. Okay, gentleman on the left there. Gotta be fast. Okay, uh, uh, Pat Spann, retired US government. Uh, one, one quick thing that the irony I read somewhere on the Senator Warren was that her ancestors were the uh, soldiers that escorted the Indians into Oklahoma. But but that's an irony. But uh, I was wondering when did when did I was when I was growing up being an old person in the 50s and 60s going to school, there was three races. There was Caucasian, Mongoloid, Negroid. When did it change that basically we use the basically tribals tribal and ethnicity has become identified as racial? It just seems very strange to me. I'm going to say that to answer that question, when did it change, you need to read David's book because it's too long an answer for us to, 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 to pack in here before we have to adjourn. But thank you. It is a good question. Uh, lots of answers in David's book. Uh, I want to thank our audience today uh, for attending in person. Thank you to our large on-stream audience. Uh, thank you to C-SPAN for televising. And especially thank you to our panelists, our uh, two uh, uh, distinguished commenters, and to Professor David Bernstein. Please join me in thanking them.